Good morning or good afternoon, guys. Pariah Nation is back with yet another episode. And today we're going to be basically talking about the African diaspora. And as you can tell by the name of the podcast, Blood is Thicker Than Water. And we're going to essentially be arguing that the blood that we share as Africans and African in the diaspora is thicker than the water that our ancestors were sailed across 150 years or so ago to become slaves and to be brutalized and further oppressed for another 100 years. So it's a deep topic. We're going to be going through a lot of stuff. And I'd love to welcome two of your favorite TikTok creators. We have Jamil and Medea, or Medea goes to jail, and Doug Boy, obviously. Would you guys just like to briefly introduce yourself for those who people, for the people that don't know? Uh, I guess I'll go first. Hey guys, it's your girl Medea, also known as Medea Goes to Jail on TikTok. Um, I am a Togolese diasporan. I do content based on the education around Africa, African history, African culture, African fashion. Um, yeah, that's me. All right, Jamil, have a go quick. <laughs> well, go on, everybody. It's your boy, Dogla boy, you know, Jamil. You know, I am part of the Jamaican diaspora. And, you know, my content revolves around Jamaican culture, bringing highlight to the lesser known aspects of our culture. Let's chat about it. Wonderful stuff, guys. I'm so, so excited to be having this conversation. And I mean, let's get right into it, right? I mean, there's always been a talk, right? First of all, I'm one of the first people to bring it up. And uh, when it comes to Pan-Africanism, especially now that the Black identity has only really been meaningful, or like, you know, unified Black identity has only been given meaning by things by like colonialism and transatlantic slavery, where people saw us as Black people and not as, for example, someone from the Fulani tribe, someone that was Isaac, someone that was, let's say, from the Kosa people, so um, let's talk more a bit about, first of all, would you guys support the idea of Africans of the diaspora um, generally going back to either their home countries or if they don't know, just going to anywhere on the African continent that they have a link with? What would be your opinion on that? Um, generally, what I tell a lot of my African-American friends who don't really know their roots and want to learn more about Africa or go back, I say, well, pick a country that interests you if you don't know your roots. You know what I'm saying? Learn about the culture. Maybe learn the language. Maybe plan a trip there one day. So that way, like, even if that is not your true lineage, at least there you have started to build some type of bridge into the culture that, you know, you see yourself fitting into. Maybe meet some people of that culture. Um, a lot of Africans that I know are very inviting of other people when they actually show legitimate interest into them. I mean, at least for me, whenever I brought my friends home, when they asked questions about Togo or stuff like that to like my mom or my dad, like they generally get excited to share family history. They see you as family as well. They'll cook for you. So just to anyone, if you legitimately want to learn more about Africa, to actually assimilate yourself into the culture. It all starts with just your genuine interest in doing it. That's a wonderful answer. And if I may add on, I think what, what I find so powerful, I mean, like it makes maybe no sense to other people who may not be African, right? Or affected by colonialism, 
uh, many people from Europe or even let's say white Americans. Some people might not understand like what's so interesting about it. Like, you know, you're just finding out about some place where your ancestors used to live. I don't think people like realize the agenda of slavery and colonialism. Colonialism and the institution of slavery came to strip Africans away of the identity, that's one, the culture, and of course their rights. So I think the big thing is now you've been moved to a country, for example, the African Americans, you've been moved to a country where you're, you've been told that your history begins when the first slave ship <clears throat> went and bought some slaves from the West African coast. And that's when your history started. So I think it, it adds so much more meaning to someone's identity when first of all, you have the privilege of knowing where your ancestors came from and sort of going full circle and reconnecting with that culture that the colonizers and the slave traders tried to strip you of. Now let's hear from Jamil. Uh, what, what do you have to say about that? When it comes to returning back to Africa, right? And what I'll tell people of the, my, you know, my fellow diasporans, because I was the president of the African Student Union. We changed the name to Tendaji because it was a way of blending everybody together. But what I would always say was that whether you're Caribbean or American, right? We all speak one of the European languages that was imposed on our ancestors. So when you look at Africa, you realize parts of Africa also speak those same European language. People in Brazil speak Portuguese, people in Angola speak Portuguese, for example. So it, it's one thing to say, it might be safe to say that you can trace your ancestry to one of those countries. Um, if you're one of those African-Americans who's gone out and done, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry.com or even African Ancestry, you, you have an idea of where your roots are from. That might be some place that interests you. Maybe you went somewhere on vacation once and that interested you. Um, so that's that's what I'll always say as far as like going back, you know, you can look into it if you know, you know, especially us in the Caribbean, you kind of see what ethnic groups make up the culture and belief systems and stuff like that of the island, you know, in Jamaica, you're talking about a Ghanaian culture with a Nigerian vocabulary, you look in Cuba, where their Afrocentric religions are the mirror image of the Yoruba religion in Nigeria. So it'd be safe to say, tell an Afro-Cuban, you know, you might want to check out Nigeria. You might tell a Jamaican, you might want to check out Ghana, something along those lines. Um, totally, I totally agree with you, man. I think it's, I would say I'm personally for it. I don't think necessarily that you have to move back to the continent, but I think that it should, some, it should be something that we encourage I think there's a lot of value that could be added from that. And just generally speaking, it's, it's also satisfying that, you know, it's like, you know, it's basically you just rejecting this a transatlantic slave trade or colonial narrative that, you know, now you can never get back your history, you can never reclaim your culture. And it's a good way of being able to do that. One way of doing that is obviously moving there. But another way I think is just going there on holiday imagine being able to just reconnect with your culture that may have been lost for basically a century that you don't know about. And I think one, one thing that's really powerful about Africa pre-colonially is that oral history and familial lines, like, you know, the family unit was such an important part of culture. So you'd have things, for example, like the epic of Sunjata Keita, the king that unified the Malian empire, 
that was something that has been preserved through an oral tradition. And it used to be something whereby you used to sit around, let's say, um, a fire or you just during dinner, for example, your family would sit down with you and tell you these stories and you'd go to your grandmother. And who knows, even you, you might have some relatives over there that you don't know about, but you, you might find out about them, for example. Because, you know, people like in Seychelles, apparently they keep um, on a rock um, all these different names of people that um, were related to different people where you can actually be able to find out. So I found that really cute, uh, really cool. But now I want to ask the question, right? Obviously, it seems like very rainbows and sunshine, but we've had our own beefs at one point in time, whether with Africans in the diaspora and Africans. Um, what do you think are the main sources of those contentions? And like, what sort of stereotypes have you guys experienced? So I made a video about this on TikTok about the tensions between the African-American community and the African community. And when I did a bit of a like a survey between like my African-American friends as well as my African friends and my family members and stuff, the general consensus that I got was there's a great misconception in both groups about each other. Um, for example, when I talked to my mom, my mom said that growing up in Togo, all she would see is like, you know, uh, African-Americans in the films being portrayed as like gang members, drug dealers, that, you know, they didn't really care for education, that they, that's all that they did when they were here. And to her, um, she was like, you were given the blessed opportunity of being in America and, you know, you're able to get that education, yet this is what you choose to do with your life. You choose to, you know, drug deal. You choose to, you know, uh, be part of gangs. And on the flip side, um, my African-American friends would tell me that they've heard stories about, like, how other Africans sold them into slavery, sold their ancestors into slavery, that they just live like savages, that they hate Americans, like, they don't care for them. And I'm like, well, both are not true. Like, I mean, obviously we see gang life within the Black community. That's not a lie. Like, that's a thing. But for the Africans, they didn't really have a context of, what was going on like they didn't know that like you know they are at a severe disadvantage that for a lot of young african americans that like this is their only way to live because of the racism and the stereo like the concept of racism in like africa is i mean it's there but like it's not really something that they think about in a majority black country racism towards black people so my mom said that when she came to america and actually witnessed like a lot of um, the injustice going on to African-Americans in America, that was then when she began to realize like what she was seeing on TV is not the reality of what is going on. And then on the, again, on my, uh, my African-American friends would tell me that through meeting me or other Africans, they realized that what they were also informed of was not actually the case. So in general, I think that this big clash and disconnect between African Americans and Africans or, you know, other diasporans is just 
generally a lack of information on both parties. And it's not their fault because when you were raised, like just always being told this one thing, that's the mentality that you grew up in. And until you meet someone or you meet a situation that challenges that is when you truly learn that, oh, I was brainwashed into thinking this. Yeah, that, that's very powerful. And I think I'd like to just comment on two things. So um, one of the most reductive historical myths that has been perpetuated so widely by the far right and the conservative community is that black people sold their own people in slavery. What they're doing is they're committing a fallacy of, I'll just call it a fallacy of associating one group or like class, yeah, fallacy of classification, that's what I'll call it, right? You're, you're saying their own people, but who were their people? Did they just assume that black people had this unified identity before the white man came and said that you're a Negro? No. The thing is, black people never, like in the past, right? And I have to use African because of obviously the post-colonial setting that we're in. People never saw you as, for example, oh, you're another black brother, I have to take care of you. Like, for example, the way we have black unity movements, like Black Lives Matter, all this different stuff. It was not like that back then. People saw, as I said, Fulani, they saw Hausa, they saw Yoruba, they saw Akan. And what would happen is that pre-colonially, they used to have wars. And these wars, obviously, it was custom, not just in African tradition, but all around the world to take prisoners of war. So what actually happened is that they would take these prisoners and they were enemies, they were criminals to these people, right? And they said to the Europeans, okay, fine, take them. We have no reason to, uh, what, what onus is on us to protect these people? Then on top of that, right, when they're actually, um, in quote, selling their own people into slavery, how are they supposed to know what was gonna happen on the other side? They didn't know. They thought it was the same conception of African slavery, which, although it was brutal at times, was more benign as historically confirmed. So I just wanted to get that out of the water. Um, Jamil, what do you have to say about um, certain misconceptions? And we can probably just go around one more time. So likewise with, right, so likewise with what Madia was saying, right, my mother used to work in the hotel industry in Jamaica. She was very high up secretary of some of the big name peoples of couples and sandals and so so she had a more i want to say what's the word i'm looking for a more so i want to say more exposure to different groups of people versus some of us who you know stayed back in the countryside but one thing that she told me was that when she would meet americans and they would say that they had saved up months to come for a family you know weekend in jamaica to come spend the weekend come spend the week they said that, you know, they spent months of working, had to take double shifts. She was shocked because she thought that in America, people just had the money like that. So to hear that you were, you know, saving up money to come down to Jamaica was, was, a, was, an, was a, a fa- like a fact that she couldn't fathom. And she said when she immigrated to America, what shocked her even more was that she never thought she would have seen homeless people. And when she saw homeless people in America, she was shocked. And so it, show, it goes to show that the image of America that's projected to us in the Caribbean is one of a country of, of social mobility and, and wealth and where there's a, I like to say there's a, a, a bango tree in every front yard and a pot of chicken on the stove. 
you know, these are the things that we're told. So when we go to America and we see, you know, African Americans and they're struggling, it kind of throws us off because it's like, well, this is not the image we were told. And then another thing is that oftentimes, and we can probably, we'll probably get into this at a, later on in the, in the podcast, but something that I've noticed is that sometimes we, I'll, I'll speak for Caribbeans, as Caribbeans, we might kind of look at African Americans as why aren't they aspiring to do certain things, right? Which might cause these stereotypes, but that's because in our country, we're the majority. Sure, you know, Jamaica is the land out of many one people, but when, when the majority of your people are Black, when you've had nine prime ministers and only one of them is not Black, when you have seven national heroes and they're all Black, three just happen to be white passing, you know, it creates this image of, of a superior. When Marcus Garvey, right, who was born in the same parish as my mother, St. Anne, who preached this Black liberation, return to Africa, Black pride, Black love, is, is one of your country's heroes, you find it, you know, hard to fathom, a hard pill to swallow when you see African-Americans. But that's not, you know, it's not to say that that's their fault. It's a, stereo, it's a, it's a stereotype that we put onto them. And, you know, it's, it's I'm, go, I'm going off on a tangent, but, you know, I'll, I'll leave it as that that's something that we as a diaspora need to work on, is addressing the biases and stereotypes that we've formed over the years. Yeah, um, I think I'll add one thing because I haven't really spoken about African perceptions of African-Americans. But I think, okay, here's the main thing, right? Um, we, we essentially have, the main place where we get our information from is media that is really controlled by Black people. And even then, those people who are in charge of media largely warp and a certain image to either push a white savior mentality of Africa or to glorify the United States to the high heavens. So this is what I grew up believing, is that if you go to the West that you have succeeded in life, if you manage to somehow right, get educated abroad and you stay there for the rest of your life and you raise your kids there, then you have done yourself a good like, you know, a service right? You've done your part as an African parent, right? I think although, yeah, I mean, like, if you live your life the way you want to, that's totally fine. But saying that that's the only route to success was something that was certainly pushed through Hollywood movies, and even this conversation with some African parents, right? Because, you know, you always hear these institutions in the West. But also another thing, right, that perpetuated this silver spoon mentality, that every single person that is or the African diaspora that are living abroad, they have easy lives, right? And that they grew up and they are rich and you know, they, they have perfect lives and they should, and in, in other words, they basically take a lot for granted and therefore they're spoiled. I mean, yeah, people have their own experiences and all, but generally speaking, they, that also perpetuates this mentality that the Africans are morally superior in terms of the way they treat their parents and all this different stuff in comparison to the Africans in the diaspora. I think that's it's sort of like a circular thing that is an extremely toxic perception. I mean, would, Madia, would you like to add on to that? No, yeah, for sure, I agree. Like, the other night, my friends and I were here talking about like, us, like, for example, my friend, she's from Kenya, and, you know, I'm Togolese, and we were talking about like how 
we've been in similar situations and our, our, our parents would react the same way. And then, you know, I have another friend who's, you know, Mexican and our African American friends and they kind of like couldn't relate. So I feel like it was more like of, um, like for Africans, like we hold ourselves to a different standard than like African Americans, like bring it back to like what my mom said about like, you know, the gang life thing. It was more like, well, if you're here at this opportunity where you can have, you know, better education, you have opportunities to grow, why aren't you taking that? Why aren't you, like, you'll see that, like, African immigrants who come to America, they tend to do significantly better in school than African Americans who were born here. Why is that? It's because, like, the cultural significance of how the Africans held themselves above, like you are to be a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, that I definitely can relate to that different standard thing. And I'm, I'm someone that's been privileged enough to actually travel quite a lot, including to the US and also the diaspora in the UK, for example. I mean, you can, you can see people, for example, yeah, it's not what, the stereotypes actually portray which is usually the thing with stereotypes right you realize that individuals are such nuanced beings that you know for example the skin color and where they're from is only one facet of their identity and you can't necessarily use that to extrapolate what the character is going to look like so i think for me definitely there's only one solution or actually there's maybe a couple um, of solutions to this whole issue first of all we need to stop taking the media as if it's truth because the media is something that's also inherently politicized and as we've seen from the past they have a record of misrepresenting narratives especially the african narrative and this even extends to academic circles and it's quite unfortunate and of course i think we need to just genuinely talk more like i'm so glad that in this era of globalization you can actually be able to text someone in Jamaica, for example, like we have someone in Jamaica, we have someone uh, in the US, you have someone, for example, in the UK, and you can all just have these discussions. Like I'd be so down to organize a call between kids over here in Kenya, for example, and kids in New York, for example, just to get to know people's lifestyles. And I think it's an excellent way of being able to just communicate your story to different people. I mean, what do you guys think people um, what do you guys think people should do to be able to bridge that gap? I for sure it's just more of conversations like this that need to be had in order to bridge this gap because the only way to solve this miseducation is through education, is through experiencing and having conversations with you know, other people that don't run in the same circle as you. Yeah, anything to add, Jamil? I definitely agree with what Medea is saying, that open dialogue and open conversation. Um, I want to, I honestly believe wholeheartedly that in this corona teen that we've been in, with the uprise of TikTok, with people now using TikTok to speak their truths and speak their perspectives. You know, I'm here. I remember I saw one of Medea's videos once talking about Togo. And then that led me from Medea to you, to you. And now here we are talking and here we are, you know, three members of the diaspora 
from various regions of the diaspora, you know, having this conversation, speaking these things out. And so I really th believe that it boils down to having these open, and you have to be, sometimes you have to be ready to have these conversations, right? Because sometimes you'll hear some things you don't want to hear, but these things have to be said in order to move accordingly. Yeah, no, that's all facts. That's all facts, to be honest. And I think, I mean, obviously, uh, before we have to hop onto the next call, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask one question, right? It's a very mini like question. But what's your reaction, for example? What is, what's the general reaction from maybe different African-American communities? I know, for example, you, you guys live in different sides of the US, right? What is the general reaction when someone says, I'm going to send you back to Africa? What's, what's the, the reaction? Is it a negative one? Is it a positive one? I mean, when I was younger, it was definitely a negative one. But if my mom said, I'm sending you back to Africa now, shoot, send, put me on a plane. I'm out. I want to be here. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think it was more like um, a punishment back when I was younger. Because, again, I was young. I was like, what, 10? I was dumb. I didn't really know anything. Um, I didn't really know much about my country's history. All I just knew is that I was from Togo, speak this language. I was born there. I have citizenship there. That's pretty much all I knew. And then when I moved back there, when I started high school, um, honestly, I learned to love my heritage so much more. And so, yeah, now if they say send me to Africa, I'm like, peace out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, I get you. Jamil, anything from you? Um, all right, so I'm not African, right? Um, but I'm Jamaican, and so that threat of being sent back to the home country has always been a thing. And I think we as a generation need to make ourselves a promise that we won't be our parents in that aspect, right? I think a lot of the reasons why we see being sent back to Africa, being sent back to the Caribbean as a bad thing is because our parents try to make it sound as though it's a bad thing. So, you know, when you're younger, you know, I think we need to stop doing the whole, I had to walk six miles up the road to go to school and cross six rivers and fight off bandits and thieves. No, like, like that, that is another thing that demonizes the concept of going back home, right? You know, yes, tell them about the hardships, but tell them about the good things that come from being back home as well. Because I can tell you now, when I was younger and I was told, you, well, no, I've always seen Jamaica as like the best place to be. And so being told I'm going to send you back to Jamaica was more of like a, a, um, a reward than a punishment. But I have friends who are terrified of that concept because they said, you know, my mom said that they didn't have light. I said, your mom's like 60 years old when she was growing up. Yeah, there was no light. This is 60 years later, man. There's light, you know? And Lord. so these, I, think, <laughs> I think that's the thing, right? We need to stop demonizing home when we're, when we're talking about sending the children back. Yeah. If anything, oh, sorry. I was going to say, if anything, um, I don't plan on raising my kids in America, so I'll start demonizing them. When I was in America, I had to fight off these gangs. You want me to send you to America? Is that what you want? Oh, that's what I thought. I went to three protests in the span of two months. You don't want that. You don't want that. <laughs> Let me Lord. tell y'all how, about how they dealt with coronavirus here. Do you want, do you want to deal with coronavirus like this? Huh? Do you want to be kept Lord. inside the house for six months? Is that what you want? Okay, keep playing with me. Otherwise, I'll send you back to America. No, that's, that's reverse psychology, honestly. But... I mean, honestly speaking, that's one of the motivations for people that actually come back. For example, things like racism, which unfortunately they've manifested in such, on such a like, you know, large scale in countries like the U.S. And people tell you to come back to your country, right? 
And I mean, not knowing, like, for example, that the, the, the ancestors actually stole the land, right? Uh, but I mean, all these different things, it just doesn't really make sense to me. I think, um, you know, saying, for example, that, oh, yeah, I'm going to send you back to Africa as a threat. It's like we live. I mean, yeah, obviously, here sometimes in Kenya, for example, we have like, the power has been really bad. So we've, like this month, we've had like four power outages. But it's not like you're not gonna, it's not like you're gonna die. And I think for me, it's also just like, we need to humanize other lifestyles and stop holding ourselves to a higher standard and saying that because, for example, I have access to more facilities than you, then my life has more significance than yours, right? Because I think that that is going to start creeping into a post-colonial Eurocentric narrative that obviously in some ways even justifies colonialism because it's like, oh, but y'all would be living in huts if we didn't come and colonize you kind of stuff, right? So for me, it doesn't really make too much sense. And um, I'm not sure how much time we have on the, the call, but um, I wanted to ask a very kind of controversial question because even I don't have the answer to this fully. But is it possible for people of the African diasporan community to culturally appropriate uh, like a custom or a item of clothing and take as much time as you want explaining it but yeah who wants to go first okay so i've done a lot of research i've done a lot of talking i've done a lot of interviewing and this is the general let me start by saying my beliefs and thoughts on cultural appropriation before I move forward into what, like, my thoughts on what you just said is. Hey, I see Gerald over there. Anyways. Um, Gerald's the bottle, by the way, guys, if you don't know. Oh, my God. So I personally don't, I can only speak for African culture. I'm not going to speak for any other culture. Personally, I don't see cultural appropriation as that big of a deal. Like, Obviously, like, you know, there's some things like I, I would never, you know, you know, take something from another culture and all of a sudden, you know, try and profit off of it. That's just not me. Rather, what I like to do with, you know, my African clothes, my African heritage is I love to share it with my friends. I love, you know, saying, hey, come over here. Let me tie a gillet on your head. Or, you know, I just got these new African dresses in. Do you like, do you want to try it on? Like, I do it with like all my friends, my black friends, my white friends, my Asian friends. Like I don't care because I love sharing the culture. I love teaching them recipes. I love cooking with them. You know, I feel it's more of a, a sharing and celebration of culture rather than you're white. You cannot do this. This is wrong. I don't, I don't believe in that. Cause I just, I just feel like culture is meant to be shared because as you like our people back then were nomadic people. So, you know, they go, they meet other ethnic groups, they see things in another ethnic group, which is why you'd see a lot of, you know, belief systems, a lot of, you know, cultural, like things, like items that are culturally significant in one culture is very culturally significant in another African culture because they shared culture. And I just believe that that's the way culture should have, should be and should always be sharing. Um, but now getting to what you said about can African-Americans appropriate African culture? I think no, because like I said, culture is meant to be shared. You're meant to be proud of it. You, you want other people to know your culture because it's what makes you special. It's what makes you unique. It's what sets me and you apart, for example. Like, yes, we're all black. You know, we love that. 
But, you know, for example, like the way that like, you know, we wear headdresses for a wedding in my culture is beautiful and amazing. And the way that, you know, you celebrate your weddings also is beautiful and amazing. And we love that. And of course, if there's a unification of two different cultures, it just makes it even more bigger and beautiful. And when I see my African-American friends take interest into African culture, it makes me feel so happy. Like you see that I love my culture so much that you want a part of it too. So, so of course, let's, let's celebrate it. Let's do it together. I'll teach you my language. If you want me to, I'll teach you foods. I'll, I'll go, when I go back home to Africa, I'll bring dresses for you. Like that's just the way that I've always seen it. And I just feel like this whole while I do understand where, you know, the cultural appropriation line has to be drawn, because obviously I would not be okay with, you know, someone of another culture now trying to profit off of a culture that they clearly have no education about. Like, you, I, you will never see me trying to sell, you know, Chinese artifacts because that's just not right. Like, that's something I'm not really well versed in. It's not my culture. And even if I did know about it, I don't feel comfortable profiting off of something that is not culturally significant to me. If you see me selling African head wraps, sure, yeah, I would love to do that. But at the end of the day, I think it's more of what you're doing with the culture that matters. Are you taking this culture and further spreading it and educating about it? Or do you just see it as a trend and are you just trying to make money off of it? Yeah, that's that's facts. I think it's it's a complex thing. Um, actually, Jamil, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll hop on just to piggyback of what Medea is saying. I wrestle. I've wrestled with the the meaning of cultural appropriation to me for many many years, and I've come to this conclusion that. And I, and I'll and I'll speak to the defense of African Americans, right? Well, actually, before I even get to that. I feel like when we talk about cultural appropriation, we also have to talk about gatekeeping, right? Because it's oftentimes you have people who genuinely, like Medea said, you have people who genuinely want to ingratiate themselves into their, their culture, right? So we can take African-Americans and we can take Afro-Caribbeans because these are the members of the diaspora that are so removed from their roots that we would want to return to that. And you have, you will have, I've, granted, I've never experienced this, but I've heard from especially African-Americans that they've been told they have no right to it. They have no claim to it. And I say, you can't tell the, 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 the descendants of slaves that they need to come back to Africa, but then at the same time, tell them that they're culturally appropriating some things. Now, while I understand there are some, maybe, there, maybe there's certain clothing that can only be worn during a certain time or certain things like, like I know waist beads, right? I know in some cultures, waist beads are private and others waist beads are not. And I understand that. But some, oftentimes we're not even given the opportunity to, to learn or, you know, express where we're coming from before we're shut out. But I don't think that cultural appropriation is necessarily a thing. I don't think that the descendants of slaves can appropriate something that belongs to them. And you can say, oh, you know, you're African-American, you're not Togolese, you're African-American, you're not Nigerian, you're African-American, you're not Ghanaian. You don't have a claim to this. And I'll tell you this, you're right. They're not Togolese or Ghanaian. 
or a Nigerian. They might be all three. Because when the, when the slaves were brought over to the Americas and to the Caribbean, there was a lot of mixing. This is why in Jamaica, our, our top layer culture is very Akan, but our language is very Yoruba and Igbo. You know what I'm saying? That's why in, in Jamaica, we have Obia, which is more of like a, a, a Ghanaian um, tribal and um, ethnic religion. But then in Cuba, you have um, Lukumi, right? That calls upon the same God, gods as those of the Yoruba religion. So these are the things that you need to take. And so are they culturally appropriating? You have to ask yourself these things. In Haiti, Haitian voodoo stem from the fact that the Africans that were brought there had to, could not practice their traditional religions. And so to hide it from their masters, synchronized it with Catholicism. Are they appropriating? Right? And I know in Haiti, they eat something called tom-tom. Tom-tom is, a, if in, in an African concept, tom-tom is fufu. Are they appropriating? Right? These are the things you have to ask yourself. And I'll leave it at that. And not only that, yeah, Yeah, not only that, but going more off of what Jamil just said, culture evolves. You know what I'm saying? Like, just like you just mentioned about how, you know, Haitian voodoo or Tom Tom, like, these are things like when they were ripped from their lands and brought someone somewhere else, they adapted, they changed. And now these are things that are ingrained in their culture. So I absolutely agree. And with the gatekeeping thing, like we just had like an issue about this on my TikTok where another African was trying to come at me for talking about African history when I'm like, sis, slow your roll. Not that I have to justify myself to you, but I was born in Africa. I lived in Africa and I have African citizenship. So why are you trying to gatekeep education? Wouldn't you, like, that's the thing, like, a big thing with me when it comes to culture and everything is I want to break down those stereotypes that we're uncivilized, that we live in mud huts, and, and we, we were not doing anything until the white man came and saved us. That's not absolutely not true at all. So, like, I, I just... That's like another thing about like the African community. I haven't seen this a lot. I've only ever experienced this on the internet of Africans gatekeeping because most of the Africans that I know here are more than happy to educate, to talk about culture. Even in our African student council, we're not all Africans. We're not all African-Americans. There are non-Af- like non-black people in the club. And it's just more of a conversation. Like I'm saying, like, I think this is just more of an open dialogue that just needs to be had to normalize, like, the sharing of culture. Because, I mean, since the dawn of time, that's what our ancestors have been doing. Yo, those are such deep and, like, rich points. I think what I'll start off by saying is it is naturally in African custom to be kind to not just only your community, but foreigners, or at least people that have, like, you know, let's say they've traveled out, and guests, essentially. And you can see this, for example, in the Malian Empire's constitution, the Korakuan Foga. Can't remember which article it was, but it literally said in Monday, be kind to the foreigners. And, like, you know, you have to welcome guests in. So me thinking about that is like, if you look at the way, for example, certain European explorers and, you know, other people were welcomed, you see, for example, the the African custom was the same almost everywhere. 
right? You have some people who, some Portuguese, some like white Portuguese people who are exploring at that time, they weren't so violent. And they were welcomed into the Zimbabwe, like, you know, the, the kingdom of Great Zimbabwe. When they went to Kanem they were also welcomed. Ibn Batuta was welcomed to the, the Malian Empire. The same thing for Leo Africanus. Ibn Batuta was also welcomed over here in Mombasa, in Kilwa Kisiwani. And the thing is, you see what I'm saying? It's like, when they came, they were not just given gifts. They said, this is our culture. This is how we live our life. So I think it's almost innate within African nature to be sort of familial. And I think that obviously when it comes to African-Americans, I don't mind, for example, if even someone that has West African lineage decides, you know what, I want to learn more about Kenyan culture, like, you know, Pilau, all this different stuff, chapati, and they make chapatis, all this different stuff. And then maybe they wear something like, let's say, a Maasai blanket. I don't mind because the fact of the matter is the greater good of African unity for me means so much more than something like that gatekeeping. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. And like moving on to cultural appropriation in general, what I think is like, it's, for me, it's never really made too much sense, for example, that someone will get mad when, for example, a white woman decides to wear dashiki. Like, yeah, I mean, like there is some element of like, you know, shock because like, you know, this isn't necessarily their culture, but I think there has to be sort of two conditions, right? The first condition is obviously, are you doing it properly? Are you doing the culture properly? Who have you talked to? All this different stuff. And um, obviously, race is a different story. I'm not going to talk about race today because it's a whole different topic, right? But when it comes down to something like, for example, a dashiki or something like an article of clothing, um, as long as you're respectful to the culture and you're not demeaning it, that's fine. Another thing, if you're not from that culture and you're using it for profit, that's where... I might also draw the line, right? My issue is this. It's not the fact that you're selling it for profit because you can do whatever you want. But when someone is selling something only for profit, that means one, they are obedient only to trends and the preservation of the culture is of no consequence to them. It adds nothing to their lives. So they have no incentive to respect that culture, let alone keep it in their cycles for future use, for example. That's my only thing that we need to be careful of. One thing, unfortunately, I do have to point out, and it's gonna segue into our next topic. As an African, something that kind of hurts me is, for example, in films, and I am not hitting out on Chadwick Boseman, guys. It's unfortunate that he's not here with us, but I feel like for something like Black Panther, for example, or Black is King, I have to extend this form of criticism, especially when I'm watching the movie, right? You have, a view of African culture that I would say is not necessarily accurate. For example, there was the African accent idea pushed through. It's like, what's an African accent? I remember being in a South African theater where they were speaking Kosa, and I'm so sorry if there's any uh, South Africans, I've totally butchered the pronunciation of the language and of the people. But I was in that theater with South Africans of all backgrounds. And when the person, I, I don't know who it was, I can't remember which character was speaking. When they spoke in that accent, everyone, like, it's, you know, the way Africans just look at each other, <laughs> like in shock. We all looked at each other like, what was that? Right? What, there's nowhere. Like, I reminded people that obviously, yeah, if you're, if you're from the African continent, there's 54 countries and there's thousands of cultures. So pick one or at least diversify the accent. But say one African accent, that's just totally misguided. And also, for example, in something like Black is King, um, obviously, yeah, beautiful piece of artwork. 
And I love the fact that you collaborated with many African artists, right? But apparently what I heard from some South Africans is that a piece of their culture was used, but it was not used properly. And this is what I mean, right? If you're an African-American, one thing to be cognizant of is to really research this culture. Are you respecting it enough, for example? Because some people will even be getting tattoos of, for example, tribal markings, but you've disrespected a whole culture back home because that tribal marking is so much more meaningful than just lines being drawn there or it looks cool. So, I mean, it's a balance. What do you guys think about that in relation to um, African diaspora films or like, I'll just call it Afrofuturism as a theme in the, um, the industry? of music and media, like, you know, film? Um, definitely. So I'm not going to lie. I've definitely played into that African accent thing because, I mean, I do African accents, but I don't really, like, specify which it is. And now I'm trying to be more conscious of that um, more than ever. But when it comes to, like, African... Because, okay, I definitely appreciate the African representation in media because... Growing up, first of all, I didn't really have that many black role models to look up to that were like black women, but also I didn't really have that many African women to look up to other than my family members. So for me now to see, you know, women like Lupita Nyong'o out here, you know, being more, you know, out there with her culture and things like that, it's definitely a great thing to see. But I would wish more that it was like, because this is, again, where it becomes, like, very gray, right? Because it's, like, obviously, Beyonce is African-American. So she has the right to, you know, want to, you know, express herself culturally if that's what she chooses to do. But when it comes to, again, like, something being incorrectly represented, I would have preferred it to be, like, you know, you know, someone like Yemi Alade out there, you know, we have Tiwa Savage out there, you know, actually, like, and you know... Um, what am I trying to say? Actually out here, like trying to perpetuate more of, you know, normalizing this African culture in mainstream media. Because for me right now, it seems more of like a trend, you know, because when Black Pat, because I literally distinctly remember getting bullied for being African growing up. And then when Black Panther became a whole trend and, you know, loving Africa became a whole trend, all of a sudden I see the kids who were bullying me for being African are the same ones out here rocking the shikis and African necklaces and, you know, Ankara head wraps all of a sudden. And it was like, but weren't you three sec? Oh, oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that's... I totally agree. I think I'll let Jamil speak and then I'll add on to what he's saying afterwards. So I, where do I even start? When it comes to like the Afrofuturism films, right? I, I'll admit I haven't seen Black is King, so I can't speak on that. I will speak on Black Panther and trying to remove myself from the personal attachments I have to what that film did for someone like me. Um, I have to say, and not to, and not to, I've, I've never, I don't think I knew any Africans in elementary school or middle school. I think I didn't really meet anybody that was African until I got to high school. And maybe that's because, you know, that whole bullying of Africans was going around that they wouldn't upset it even if they were. That being said, and I'm not negating that that happened or didn't happen. I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that it happened. I probably met African or African-American passing, if that's what you want to call them. But 
I what I think those films did was it told the members of the diaspora that it was okay to be African, that there wasn't anything wrong. We I I I, I like to think we all know that Wakanda is not a real place, but Wakanda showed very real things. Being I think what happened was when I became the president of the African Student Union, because it was called the African Student Union, a lot of my attention went to representing Africa and a lot of our events instead of representing the wider diaspora. And so by the time, you know, Black Panthers come out, I've pretty much read every book or that's an exaggeration, but I've read a pretty decent amount of books on different African tribes and ethnic groups within Africa. So when I sat there and I watched during the, the scene where T'Challa is stripped of his power and all the other tribes, you know, are saying, yeah, we're not, we're not going to challenge. We're not going to challenge. I was like, oh, those people, oh, that old lady has the earrings of the Fulani. So I guess the mining tribe is the Fulani and the river tribe, the guy has the lip plates. And, you know, these people have the, the scarification and the Lesotho blankets. And, and I was able to call out different things so much to the point that the following April when our school had its like whole um, award ceremony, I went and I had like a shawl and I wore it like a Lesotho blanket because I was like, there is that you you felt kind of proud to be African. And as far as the African accent, as a Caribbean, I'll agree. There's no such thing as a Caribbean accent. I posted a video on TikTok. Many people for years have thought Sebastian the Crab from The Little Mermaid was Jamaican. I let people know that he's actually Trinidadian. Um, and that was just because the guy couldn't do a Jamaican accent, but he could do a Trini accent. And the people at Disney were like, yeah, well, that's what we were hoping for anyway. And I was like, then why did you just say that? So I can understand where that comes from. And I play on it sometimes. I can't do a Trini accent. They say you need to be able to sing to do that. But I can. But I, I, I can acknowledge how damaging that accent can be, the use of the accent when not done properly, because it kind of does paint this image or ideology. From my understanding, when it came to that accent, they wanted to give T'Challa like a, a European accent, like a British, refined, you know, upper class British accent. And Chadwick, may he rest in peace, said, Wakanda has never been colonized. We've never had contact with Europeans. Why would I talk like one? And, you know, also was the language that was used. And apparent, the, the actor who played his father, his older father and his younger father are both from South Africa. And so I guess, you know, it would make sense that since that's the language they're using, they'd also end up using that similar accent just because of um, proximity. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. And I think for me, I'm just going to touch on two points. I'm not here to bash Black Panther or Black is King, right? Um, I think for me, out of all the films that I've ever watched in my lifetime, that is that has portrayed Africa in a certain way, that is the only film that I can say that has gotten over 90% of the minor details correct. And as an African, you don't know how much that means to us. When I looked into that theater, people literally were shedding tears. Because for once, the story of Africa, right, was being told in a positive light. And the fact that you saw someone wearing, as you said, like the Lesotho blanket, and I'm like, yo, you know, this is, you get excited because it's like, yo, this is the first time people actually know us as one non-homogenous block of ethnic diversity, right? And I think for me, this proved, I think one powerful thing about Afrofuturism and one, one excellent juxtaposition of ideas that was 
portrayed through Black Panthers, obviously you had, for example, this, the, the shields that they were using and they turned out, like, turned out to be like, very advanced. So it was more or less like, you know, you say that we have no advanced military tactics, but they used all these things, oh, you lived in huts, and they turned it around and said, actually, these are very advanced huts to you, right? And like, you know, we have all the technology, all this different stuff. So for me, it was very powerful. But here, I, I, might, I might as well also just like extend this criticism, right? I think it's not necessarily a criticism of the film, but of the industry as a whole. I think, first of all, the fact that Wakanda is a mythical place plays into this idea that, first of all, Africa had no great stories. And I'm not saying that they, like, you know, they, they, it's the first of its kind, that sort of film. But guys, we need films about people like Yasuke. And I know that Chadwick Boseman was filming it. I really hope he was able to finish that film, right? But it would have been such a powerful one and I would have loved to see him act that role. Yasuke, for you, those who don't know, is the first and I think the only black samurai. And he was highly esteemed in the Japanese community and almost even deified, to be honest. Like people looked at him as if he wasn't really like human. He was like a superhuman. We need stories about people. Like obviously we need a Mansa Musa movie. Right, we need one, and we need a, uh, a movie about the people of the the Razbi in uh, Zimbabwe, right? We need stories of Ya Asantiwa. We need movies about Queen Aruelo, right? Princess Yenega, right? All these different names. Some of them you might not even know. I highly suggest you go and research them. But the power of African stories will forever be there. Like, I mean, even for example, the story of I think, not Candace Owens, guys, right? But um, the queens, uh, the, the Candaces of Nubia, right? Uh, she literally sent uh, one of the Roman emperors golden arrows as a gift. They said, if you choose to surrender, keep these golden arrows as a gift. But if you choose not to surrender, you keep the arrows because you'll need them. I mean, you know, that could be the, a whole plot, a whole movie right there, right? So my main thing is that obviously you don't really have to focus too much on mythic, mythical stuff. You can maybe extrapolate from what we already know in history. Then I'm gonna go into the final segment, um, just like sort of last block before we go, because I know Malia needs to go as well. Um, what unfortunately this globalized world has done is it's sort of even amongst African stories, you only get to see a few African countries. And some people actually think, for example, that African culture in quotes only consists of Nigerian culture because of Bernabo and Wiz Kid. Um, maybe a bit of Ghanaian culture here and there, but even Ghana, out of Ghana, Nigeria, Nigeria is more popular. Then Somali culture, because of the high presence of Somalis in Minneapolis, and also, for example, in places like the UK, Somalis have their own sort of like, you know, culture. So Ethiopians less to a lesser degree. Also South Africa, to an extent, they have their own culture. What is your, what is your opinion on this sort of cultural dominance that we've sort of seen? Like certain African cultures in certain African countries have obviously taken most of the digital space that's out there. What's your opinion on that? And how can we be able to even out the playing field? I think it's more about like exposure, you know what I'm saying? Because I mean, I I talked about this on TikTok about like why why is it that we hear more about you know Nigerians and Ghanaians and South Africans and Somalis? It's because they are so big chested about their countries that you know they're they they'll never shut up about it. I'm sorry if I offended anyone. That's not that's not what I meant. Like you know, what I, and it's not a bad thing. It's not because. I mean, that's, that's why these countries are so known is because they never stop talking like, oh, 
when I went to Nigeria, oh, when I went to Ghana, oh, back in Somalia, like these, these are people who are so proud of their heritage that they just never stop talking about it. And, you know, when I realized, like, this was a, a thing that I was thinking, about. I was like, well, I'm, I never meet Togolese people because one, Togo is really small. And, you know, the chances of meeting a Togolese person, especially one of my ethnic group is very small as well. So what can I do in order to increase Togo's visibility? I started talking about it in my everyday life. Like I will always just casually drop. Yeah, I'm from a small West African country named Togo. And literally the amount of people, like I think out of, let's say like in the general time of my life that I've spoken to people, I think I've literally educated 99% of the people of my life about Togo because they just never knew about it. They didn't know it existed. They had no idea what the flag looked like. They have no idea languages that we speak, anything. And I get a lot of my comments about like, oh my God, you're like the first Togolese person that I've ever seen with the platform. This is amazing. I love seeing like, oh, you talking about our culture and things like that. And honestly, I think that as Africans, as diasporans, like what we can do to, you know, break down the stereotype that Africa is just this one big homogenous block, like you said, is to diversify ourselves and what we talk about. Don't just assimilate into like the culture of I'm a background country. No, you're a beautifully vibrant person who came from a very beautifully vibrant country and i feel like maybe jamil you can kind of relate to this as well because i mean when people think of the caribbean automatically it's jamaica it's jamaica um i mean even me jamaica was the only country that i really knew about in the caribbean area until you started you know educating me about you know trinidad and tobago and you know the other islands that are there and it really made me realize, well, why is it that I only know about Jamaica? It's because the Jamaicans are so proud of their culture that, you know, you see, I don't think I've ever met a Jamaican that did not have the Jamaican flag on them in some way or form on their bracelet, on their shirt, on their hat. I don't think I've ever met a Jamaican that doesn't have, and even for the Kenyans, like you guys, all, all, all of the Kenyans that I know have the bracelet, all of y'all, all of y'all. And I feel like, you know, that, that is just a defining characteristic of just bringing up the culture. You know what I'm saying? Yo, I can totally agree with that. <clears throat> and just for the guys, I can even say this with confidence. If you're a Kenyan and you have a Kenyan passport, but you don't have a Kenyan bracelet, I'm going to question your Kenyan identity. <laughs> That's literally how you identify Kenyans. Even I'll, I'll be all the way in Cardiff and I'll see someone just, you know, like with a cup of coffee and then I'll see the kind of bracelet and I get so excited. It's really powerful. But anyways, uh, Jamil, um, let us know your thoughts and then we can uh, begin to close up. No, definitely. And Madia is absolutely right. As she's saying that I'm looking on my wall and I see my Jamaican flag on every social media account I have, there's a little Jamaican flag in the bio. Like that, that is what that representative, that representation does. And it, it does bring a, a, a detriment to it sometimes you know I, I commented on somebody's video there and I said you know you should do a video on Jamaica and somebody said no they did a video on Jamaica I said no they didn't they tagged me under a video talking about the broader Caribbean as a whole as though Jamaica alone represents it and so you have these things where people think Somalia South Africa and Nigeria are these whole representatives of Africa and it really does boil down to who's speaking about it and I can say that for myself right Jamaica's population is majority black is majority Christian. 
So when people see my channel and they see me champion Islam, you know, representing myself as a Jamaican Muslim, champion myself as a Jamaican who is the descendant of the Indians that were brought over as indentured laborers, they're shook. Because for the most part, people understood that, people think that out of the British Caribbean, that Trinidad and Guyana cornered the market. And then they'll also throw in Dutch Suriname. So they think these three countries cornered the market on Indians and therefore might have cornered the market on, on Islam, which isn't necessarily the case. And so I completely agree that when you, when you have a platform, right? And part of the reason why I ended up making those TikTok videos in the first place was because I saw people talking about Indo-Caribbeans, but they always left out the Jamaican flag. And I saw people talking about Islam, but they never counted the Caribbean. And so being that person who stands at that intersection, I, I was like, well, if no one else is going to tell my story, I will. And there's a, if I'm not mistaken, there's a, I don't know if it's an African proverb or whose proverb it is, but there's a proverb that says until the lion starts to tell, until the lion tells his story, the, the hunter is always the winner. <clears throat> yeah, no, I think it's, it's you guys, like, honestly, I just had a crazy, crazy idea, right? And I think, um, okay, what I'm going to do is basically, if you're in, if someone from the African diaspora, you'll listen to me real good. I mean, like, yeah, obviously there's, there's no real exchange programs. I'm not going to lie. Like finding an exchange program between African diaspora and African kids, that would be so amazing. Like the, the exchange of culture would be, it would be invaluable. Like it was like, it's literally just unlimited cultural exchange from unlimited countries. I mean, just sort of different people, different stories, different backgrounds. I would love to see that, although I know it's expensive, all this different stuff. But if you are, for example, uh, an American who is interested in learning about, about African culture, my old school, the African Leadership Academy, has something called the Catalyst Program. And obviously, like I think they do offer scholarships, so you guys will have to check. But there are over 50 countries represented then. Even as an African, I didn't know much about my neighbors or my West African you know, neighbors, Central African neighbors, but there was people from all kinds of countries, including Togo. I had a friend called Apolline that came from Togo as well. And he, he was just championing, you know, like his own story and all this different stuff. And you get this sort of African sort of community it was so beautiful. And yeah, by the way, the African Leadership Academy is in South Africa if you guys want to apply. But even just, if you guys ever get the chance to go to one of those African schools, and there's several good African universities as well, um, try it. Why not? Even if it's for a semester, like go there and experience it. And you don't know the, the sort of value of these things because when we start to do things like take control of our narrative, whether it's through media, whether it's through writing our own stories, whether it's through bypassing the racial, like, you know, racially motivated media, right, that never tells Africa's story, right, and going straight to the source of information, we actually start to build our own pro-African institutions and systems of knowledge that are untouchable by any other group. And that's how we start to actually get control back of things like our roots. So anyways, guys, um, we're going to probably wrap it up there. I mean, if you have anything uh, else you want to say, Medea, Jamil, we can just say it now and we can just wrap up. I mean, this is a great conversation. It's always a great time talking to you guys and hearing your perspectives on things. And yeah, thank you guys so much for this. Likewise, it's always great talking with you guys. You know, for those of you who don't already, please check me out on TikTok at Dogla Boy. And, you know, see you guys soon.
Yeah, guys, I'll, I'll definitely link both of your TikToks <clears throat> in the bio. Um, I would just like to off, like, like to end off by saying, obviously, that the blood we share as Africans is thicker than the water that our ancestors were sailed across to be brutalized and enslaved and to be ripped of their identity. And us as Africans and as Black people in general benefit from being unified and from sharing our knowledge and treating each other like the family that we are. Thank you guys so much. And we'll be releasing a new podcast some point this week. Much love, respect, and we'll see you guys next time.